favorite pastime for many people across the, across the country, across the world during this last year of COVID, was to binge watch lots of TV. Lots of TV. Now, we have kids, so we don't have the pleasure of binge watching lots of TV. But for those of you who are not uh, restricted by, by little monsters, you could binge watch TV. Just last night, we got, uh, got in on the game late. We started watching this show called The Chosen. Have you heard of this show, The Chosen? Uh, we watched the first episode, and you get right at the end, and you're kind of left wondering what happens next. And then my beautiful bride, who needs to go to bed, says, let's watch another one. I said, no, I need to go to bed, so we went to bed. But there was this sense of what happens next. You got a show like that where you couldn't stop watching it? Okay. I don't want to know what that show was. There, no judgment. No judgment here. But there's that sense of what happens next. And I had that kind of feeling as we stopped our study of this sermon by the Apostle Paul in Acts 13. We kind of just stopped right in the middle of that sermon. Now, I kind of know where each of these sermons is going, as you do as well, but there's always some nuance in how they tell the story of Jesus. And so I'm left after last week wondering, what happens next? You know, we looked at that pattern Paul lays out in that first part of his sermon where he reviews three periods of Israel's history. We'll just put, put them up right here. We... Paul reviews the Exodus, the Judges, and that period of the Kings. He just he looks at each one of those chronological order very quickly as Luke records it. And there he sees a pattern happening with God's people. He sees this pattern. We'll just put it up right here. That God we'll put that let's put that up. Here it is. God delivers. He delivers his people. He is lavishing them with grace and mercy, and then the people rebel and they search for another Savior. So when he brings them out of Egypt, what do they do in the wilderness? They build a golden calf and worship it as their God. In the period of the judges, rather than worship God and trust Him for their deliverance, they start to seek and reach for their own definition of good and evil, and then God in His mercy gives them judges to deliver them from their enemy. And then even after all of that, they get to this point where God, the, the people cry out to God, give us a king. God says, I am your king, but if you must, here's your king. And he gives them Saul. And we ended last week's sermon right there at the end where Paul declares that even in the pattern where God delivers and the people rebel, he finally gives them Jesus. That's where we ended. We ended with Jesus last week. God, in his faithfulness, sent his son to his people. That's where we left it. And we would expect then that maybe something would turn out different. But not so much. That same pattern of God delivering and giving grace and then the people rebelling, that same pattern holds in the life of Jesus. Because you know what his people will do to Jesus? They'll do the same thing they did in the wilderness in the time of the judges. And when they cried out for a king, they will rebel. They will reject God's faithfulness. They will reject Jesus. And that's exactly where Paul goes in this next part of his sermon. So we pick up Acts 13. We're going to pick up in verse 26. Here is the next part of the sermon. Fellow children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us 
that this message of salvation has been sent. Well, the people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning Him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. And though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And then they carried out all that was written about Him, and they took Him down from the cross, and they laid Him in a tomb. And that's where, that's where we want to stop for a moment, because that's the pattern. God lavishes His people with faithfulness, He sends them a Savior, and then... Not only do they not recognize Him, they have Him executed. This is the people of God. The people that God chose in all of His mercy. A people that didn't deserve to be chosen, but God chose them. It reminds me of Deuteronomy 7 where Paul, uh, Moses says this to the people. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, first part of verse 8. We're reading this out of the New Living Translation. The Lord did not set His heart on you. Here he, Moses talking to the people. And He didn't choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you. He was keeping the oath that He has sworn to your ancestors. God just poured out grace on His people. He chose them, and He cared for them, and He delivers them. And then what do they do over and over again? They reject Him. They rebel against Him. And it comes to the point that even when He sends His Son... The, the, great, the great demonstration of Deuteronomy 7, this great demonstration that God loves you, what do they do? They reject Him and they have Him executed. And it's just not the Jews that are getting in on this. The Gentiles get in on it as well. Pilate, the Roman official Pilate, he's the one that gives the order. It's the Roman soldiers who nail his hands and feet to the cross. It's all humans who get in on it. This pattern isn't just a pattern for the Jewish people. This is a pattern for every human. It actually goes back to the beginning. You remember the beginning. Genesis 1-3. through 3. So if I just had to take Genesis 1-3 through 3 and put it on two slides to tell that story, here's how we do it. I want to tell us the story of the beginning. Here it is. Genesis 1. You can see these several verses. 27-9, verses 16-17. And, and we'll look at the first part of chapter 3. So God created mankind in His own image, and in the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free. You're free to eat any from any tree in the garden. But you not, must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them, well, they were opened and they realized that they were naked and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Three slides, slide two. That's where it all broke. God saying to all to these two humans, you can have everything. I've given it to you, and I want you to work the land. I am abounding with goodness. Go, go, be free. But don't try to determine good from evil on your own. You keep me as the source 
of how to understand what is good. And yet, it didn't take long, it appears, until they decided to rebel. It's that same pattern. God lavishes with abundance, and then humans rebel. And that infection caught hold of every human thereafter. Relationships were broken. They're sent out of the garden. They can't handle that kind of abundance. And yet, before they're sent out, God says to these two humans, He says, I will send a human being one day. He will come from Eve, the line of Eve, and He will crush the head of this serpent, this evil one. And yes, the serpent will bite him, but he will be crushed. And so, even in, even in sending them out from the garden of goodness, God promises He's going to make it right. He will take it on to make it right. And he says, I'm sending a human. Although the relationship has been broken, I'm going to make it right. And what does He do? Eventually, He does send a man in the line of Eve. It's God Himself coming through a woman, Jesus. And yet, what do they do with Jesus? They do the exact same thing they've been doing to God ever since the beginning. They reject Him and kill Him. And Paul ends at this point in the sermon saying, and they laid Him in a tomb. Now right there, this story is pretty depressing. You have God lavishing love on humans, finally, finally coming to the point where He can fix it. And what have they done? They've killed Him and laid Him in a tomb. Now if that's all Paul said here, we wouldn't be reading this story because there'd be nothing about it that would be exceptional. There'd be nothing about it that would transform any human life. But that was not the end of the story. The tomb was not the end of the story. Rebellion and death would not void the promises of God. All those promises that He's made to His people, they don't get void because of human rebellion. They don't get void because of death. Something else happens. That's where Paul picks up as he gets into the meat of the reality of the kingdom of God. Here it is. Acts 13, we pick up verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised to our ancestors, He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. God raised Him up from the dead so that He, that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, You will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead, he did not see decay. Just quick quiz. Jesus was in the grave. How many days and nights? Three. Three. Interesting that as Luke records the sermon, I'm sure Paul even said more than this, as Luke records it to get the essence of the message, do you know how many times we read Jesus was raised from the dead? Three. Interesting. Three. You know, a general principle when reading our Bible is that when it's repeated, it's important. And here Paul lays it out as clearly as we could get it. 
Jesus came back to life. Something fundamentally has changed in reality. And he pieces together, he weaves together now these three Old Testament passages. Psalm, uh, Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, and then Psalm 16. He weaves those together to declare that truth that Jesus was risen. And if we just had to expand that, here's, here's what I want to do. I want to expand it just one, one extra level. When you put these together, these passages together, they describe how God promised to establish a king who would rule the world forever and ever, giving his people true life. God had promised that one day that was going to happen, and all of a sudden now it's happening in Jesus. That's the reality. So death and rebellion don't get the final say. And this, the Apostle Paul, the one who persecuted Christians, his world has literally been turned upside down. He now is moving into this reality that God's Son, now risen, now reigning, now giving life, is literally transforming the world. And what Paul knows, as he speaks to these people in the synagogue on this day, is that if you get connected to this one who has life, you get life. It's like what C.S. Lewis calls in mere Christianity the good infection. It's the kind of infection you want. It's when you get his life, it spreads and it takes over and it gets into the way you talk. It moves into your fingertips. It changes the way you move. It changes who you are. It's a good infection. And Paul knows that. He knows that this Jesus is now transforming the world. That's why he calls it good news. Because it changes everything. And Paul never stopped being amazed by this. As he grew older in his walk with Jesus, the more his imagination exploded with amazement about this Jesus. And there's this one passage, and I want to read it from the message. The message paraphrase. Because Eugene Peterson gets at the heart of the passage. It's not a literal translation, but it's the way we would probably say it in American English. He writes this famous passage. It's one of the more famous chapters in all of Scripture. When he gets to the end of Romans 8, he just oozes joy and amazement. I think, I think what's happening in Acts 13 just grows inside of him to the point where he writes something like this. Romans 8, 31-39. With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God did not hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition, and exposing Himself to the worst by sending His own Son, is there anything else He wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? The One who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment, sticking up for us. Do you think anyone's going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There's no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing. None of this phases us. Because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing Nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our Master, has embraced us. When Peter got up in the synagogue and preached, 
that Jesus rose. And it was in accordance with all the promises He had given. That is the foundation for an imagination like that. An imagination not based in some fantasy, but a reality that Jesus lives. And if He lives, then there's nothing, nothing that will separate you from His love. Oh, I want that kind of vision. That's the kind of world I want to live in. I want to walk into any situation. I want to face the horrors that this life can give us. And I want to declare with Paul, but who will separate me? No one. No one. It means I can still be kind when someone's rude. That's the kind of world I can live in. So let's take that and just move it right into an application. I think there's so much here. But I want to know how in the world do you get something that big down into real life, right? just right where we live. You know, I think we struggle with really grabbing, really holding a vision of the world that's this big. But if we had to visualize the kind of world we're trying to grab onto, here's how I'd visualize it. I think this is what, what Paul's calling us to. I think this is what Acts 13, the descriptions of resurrection, what they're calling us to. I think that the reality, that reality according to the Bible is vast, it's huge, it's expanding, it's glorious. And my life fits inside of this vast reality described in the Bible. I think this is what Paul is trying to do here. He's trying to help these, these, these uh, God-fearing Gentiles and Jews on that day in the synagogue understand that God has done something amazing, that the reality looks like the resurrection of Jesus. It is described in the Bible. It's why he quotes three times from the Scriptures, this is the world of the Bible, a strange world indeed. This is the world of the Bible. And He is calling them to bring their life into this larger reality. That's the call for us. Is that I, I see the Bible as describing reality. That is the way things really are. And I take in all of its vastness and then I see my life as part of that reality. But ordinary life. Ordinary life, with all of its boredom and frustration, all of its death and sickness, it has a way of restricting our imaginations. We come to that point where we see reality as really just the things we hear in the news or the things we experience, the way our body feels. That becomes reality. It doesn't take long for the world of the Bible, that strange, immense world, that is real to be reduced to just what I experience. And we lose the imagination. This is what I think happens to us. This next slide. I think what happens is reality starts to be shaped according to what I see and experience. What the news tells me. Tells me what's here and now. And then what happens is that we try to, we try to fit the Bible inside of this this lived experience. We want the Bible to fit our lives. And Paul is calling these people and calling you and I that we fit inside of the vast world of the Scriptures. Oh, but it's become so easy to turn that upside down. To just reverse the order. Where I'm trying to get the Bible into my life. No. I'm trying to get into the Bible. Because it is describing a world much bigger than anything I can imagine. 
I hope the world is bigger than what I see on 24-hour news or what moves through my social media news feeds. Oh, I hope it is bigger than that. And so this is what Paul is calling us to. One of my favorite authors, I've already mentioned him, is Eugene Peterson. And Eugene Peterson wrote a book called Eat This Book. It's all about eating the Bible, like trying to meditate, chew on it, get it inside of us. And he has this this long quote in that book that describes exactly what I'm trying to say. And so I've tried to visualize it before I move us into that quote. Now you'll notice on the pew that I have given you a, uh, a card, and on that card is this quote. Because I know this quote is so long, it's going to take multiple readings to be able to digest it. So take it home. Keep reading it. It's a call to live inside of this grand vision of what the world really is. But I want to read this quote, and I think you'll see exactly how it fits into what we're trying to say. Here it is. We're going to put it on the screen, but you can also read off your card. I'm just going to read off the card. But come along. Here's what Eugene Peterson says. He says, we need a complete renovation of our imaginations. We're accustomed to thinking of the biblical world as smaller than the secular world. Telltale phrases give us away. We talk about making the Bible relevant to the world. As if the Bible is, I'm sorry, as if the world is the fundamental reality. And the Bible is something that's going to, well, help it or fix it. We talk of fitting the Bible into our lives or making room in our day for the Bible. As if the Bible is something that we can add onto or squeeze into our already full lives. As we personally participate in the scripture revealed world of the emphatically personal God. We not only have to be willing to accept the strangeness of this world, that it doesn't fit our preconceptions or tastes, but also the staggering largeness of it. We find ourselves in a truly expanding universe that exceeds anything we learned in our geography or astronomy books. Our imaginations have to be revamped to take in this large, immense world of God's revelation in contrast to the small, cramped world of human figuring it out. What we must never be encouraged to do, although all of us are guilty of it over and over, is to force the Scripture to fit our experience. Our experience is too small. It's like trying to put the ocean into a thimble. What we want is to fit it into the world revealed by Scripture, to swim in this vast ocean. be worth reading again. I hope you do. Take it home, read it again. This is the kind of world Paul is describing. When Paul's life is transformed by the resurrected Jesus, he goes from seeing life as defined by his experiences largely, and he is taken up into an immense world of the resurrection of Christ, where Christ now rules, where Christ now transforms, Christ now holds on to you and will not let go. This is the world Paul catches. And he sees it now throughout all the Bible. That's why he quotes three times out of the Old Testament in just a few verses. Paul's imagination has been renovated. And it's a call to me and you to also be taken into this imagination where we fit into the vastness of the Bible, not fit the Bible into our small worlds. And so if we take that and we grab this largeness of the biblical world and the resurrection of Christ, who He is for us, 
Well, that has some, something to say to you. It has something to say to me. I got a lot to say. But here are just a few things it says. Right here. It means nothing in your life is wasted. Nothing in your life will be wasted in the hands of Christ. Nothing. Nothing. I don't care. Give me your worst. Nothing will be wasted. We are loved by the person. You are loved by the person who created you. I'm not talking about your biological parents. I'm talking about the Creator God who gave you breath. You are loved. Another way of saying that, I've said it many times, He likes you. Like He'd hang out with you. And then this last one, you have access to a vast and joyful life now and forever in God's glorious universe. That means that coming off the night shift, being tired, and dealing with your kids is going to be tough. That's what that means. It's going to be tough. There's no way to whitewash that. That's just hard. But somehow, with Jesus, our risen King and friend, you can actually do that with joy. And we, we are helping each other with that. But you don't give up on the goal of joy. You see your experiences training you, doing something inside of you to create something in you so that you can walk into any situation with joy. It's why those people who were long students of Jesus and were trained in His kingdom would say things like James, James 1, when James says, count it all joy when you face any circumstance, any trial. Because it's creating something in you that will pay off in the end more than anything else you could imagine. We have to catch a vision for this. It's what Paul's calling these people to in Acts 13. It's what Paul's writing about in Romans 8. It's the very thing Eugene Peterson, a man who sat with Jesus for a long time, he writes about in that long quote. You matter in God's glorious universe. Do not lose the vision of where your life is headed. Love that song we just sang before we started the sermon. Jesus commands my destiny. America does not command your destiny. Now you be a good citizen. And you hold on to right and wrong. Do not let go of right and wrong. But you remember your destiny is tied to a greater kingdom. Your destiny is not tied to your family. It is tied to a greater family where Jesus is head. You see how we could catch this vision? And it will help you when you wake up tomorrow tired with your coffee, walking into another day. That's the goal here. All right. How do you even do that? I mean, how do you do that? I don't even know how to do that. What do you mean I don't know how to do that? I'm supposed to tell you how to do that. I don't know exactly how to do that. But I know one thing that will help. If you put the vision in front of your mind, on a regular basis. So let's not make that overcomplicated. I want to just pull back from the archives this next step we've used a couple times already. We're going to use it again. This time, though, you get to take it home as a prayer card. If you flip that card over, you see a prayer. See a prayer? Here's the next step. Let's put it on the screen and then we'll use the card. Let's convert 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 into a personal prayer. And here it is. I mean, this is our personal prayer. Now, this one is for you. So this one's for you as a, 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 in the first person, I. Every day when you wake up, just as the coffee's brewing, just pray the prayer. I think you'll see that this prayer, this, this Bible passage, this is what Paul wrote. 
No surprise, Paul wrote it. We're, all we're doing is putting it in the first person. That's all we're doing. We're just really quoting Scripture, praying the Scripture in first person. We need to catch this vision. So that when you go in the hospital tomorrow to go to work, you got this vision. When you go about your retirement, you got this vision. When you get up to work in the garden, you have this vision. Doesn't matter where you go, you got the vision. And you just pray this prayer and let it renew the imagination. That's the goal. That's what I want. That's what I'm suggesting this week. And let God, let the Holy Spirit inside of you do some work. Expand how we understand what really is. So what I want to do is we're just going to have it on the screen. I'm going to pray it. Yeah, this will be our prayer as we end. Uh, and then we'll move into our response time. So here it is. You don't, I'll pray it. You just come, just come along silently. But here's our prayer as we close. Father, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. All to your glory in the name of Jesus, our risen King. And together we say, Amen.